0: Good evening and welcome to the first lecture of week three of Rare Book School 1997. There will be two other lectures in this series this week. Uh, Peter Graham, Associate University Librarian at Rutgers University, will be speaking from this podium on Wednesday. And I'll be speaking, giving my usual uh, weekly Rare Book School lecture here on Thursday. Our lecturer this evening has spoken to the Book Arts Press on several occasions before. He is teaching a course with me in Rare Book School this week on book collecting, and a formidable book collector he is, also uh, an old friend of the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School whom it's very pleasant to welcome back to this podium. William Barlow.
1: Thank you, Terry. Uh, In 1983, I gave a talk at the Library of Congress, which in essence explained why librarians and book collectors should be interested in one another and how they might better interrelate. In 1996, I gave a talk as outgoing president of the Bibliographical Society of America, which in essence explained why bibliographers and book collectors should be interested in each other and how they might better interrelate. This evening I've been asked, in essence, to explain how antiquarian book dealers and book collectors can better relate to each other. It would seem that compared to the two previous subjects that this would be a fairly simple task. After all, antiquarian book dealers and book collectors Enjoy a symbiotic relationship. Neither can readily exist without the other. In fact, this is a more difficult subject to approach for two reasons. First, since the need for effective relationships is so obvious, I cannot justify spending any time, as I did in the two previous talks, explaining uh, the reasons why a good relationship is necessary and mutually advantageous. Uh, Secondly, While the relationship may be symbiotic, it would be safe to say that neither enjoys it. Does the clownfish really enjoy swimming among the tentacles of the sea anemone that at any time could kill and eat it? For that matter, does it enjoy being called a clown? The the title of my talk this evening, Burlesquing As It Does, that mysteriously popular book, Men Are From Mars, women are from Venus, suggests that antiquarian book dealers and book collectors are somehow temperamentally, if not biologically, different. Uh, That suggestion is intended. If the allusions to Mercury and Pluto are not always as telling as I could hope, I trust I will be forgiven. But after plowing through John Gray's book, I must say that some of his allegorical parallels are also somewhat strained, even though the astrological symbols for Mars and Venus are universally used to represent male and female. But so that you will not think that I have appropriated a catchy title, just to lure you in here this evening, I will try to justify myself. At the outset, it should be noted that Mercury and Pluto, as the first and ninth planets' move-in paths, that are at maximum distances from one another, so far apart, indeed, as to make Venus and Mars seem like next-door neighbors. Pluto, which I have equated with the book collector, also has the most eccentric orbit among the planets, occasionally drifting inside the path of Neptune. I shall come back before too long to eccentricity. From the book dealer's perspective, associating the collector with the god of the underworld, may not seem far-fetched. The reverse view may not be so obvious. The Roman god Mercury is now so inextricably linked with the Greek god Hermes, or Hermes in better shops, (coughs) that we think of winged heels and FTD florists and the like. If we remember that Mercury was the patron of merchants, and is often depicted carrying a purse, the reference to book dealers will be more readily appreciated. Cunning and theft are other talents attributed to Mercury. Perhaps I'd better not stretch planetary and mythological allusions any further to seek a parallel to Mercury's brilliance being obscured by its proximity to a larger and brighter object, would be an insult to book dealers like Dr. Rosenbach and Warren Howell. And if book collectors like Pluto are not visible to the naked eye, it's not because they're too distant, too dim, or were only seen first in 1930. (laughs) But the argument advanced by Dr. Gray that men and women need to understand their basic differences in order to develop mutually beneficial relationships is one that can be equally well applied to uh, dealers and collectors. What, then, are these basic differences? One would rather expect to find basic similarities. While the dealer and collector are usually on opposite sides in a given transaction, there would appear to be fundamental identities of interest that go beyond the competition inherent in commerce. Nevertheless, inside each of these perceived fundamental identities of interest, or even more fundamental physical or psychological differences. Let's explore a few of these. After all, book dealers are really book collectors too. This is a dangerous myth. The neophyte, upon seeing thousands of books lining the walls of the bookshop, sees a collector. And this view is not limited to the neophyte. What I have come to regard as the high point of academic stupidity, let me correct that, a high point of published academic stupidity, was an article by the chair of the history department of Xavier University, which appeared in the papers of the Bibliographical Society of America in 1990, entitled, The Career of Charles F. Hartman and the Tradition of Collecting Americana. In this article, the assertion is made that Hartman, who was an antiquarian book dealer and auctioneer in such diverse places as Matouken, New Jersey, and Hattiesburg, Mississippi, was, quote, a collector and probably the most famous of them all. The accumulation of books on a single subject or theme with the intention of selling them as a whole or preparing a specialized catalog is not collecting. Such examples as David McGee's three-volume catalog of Victorian literature, <clears throat> which was sold on block to Brigham Young University in 1970, or Barney Rosenthal's collection of 15th and 16th century annotated books, which was acquired by Yale University last year, may represent a higher form of bookselling, but it's still bookselling. Some of the elements of collecting are there, but not all. The complete book collector has several psychological needs, the excitement of the chase, the triumph of the capture, and the need to possess. The bookseller lacks the third element, the need to own something. Perhaps it's a genetic flaw, if the lack of a psychological defect can be described as a flaw. In his delightful talk at the annual meeting of the Bibliographical Society of America in 1995, Steve Weissman, proprietor of Zimini's Rare Books, allowed that whenever he acquired a book and looked it up in the relevant bibliography, he ticked it off, and that the physical rec- that physical rep- record represented his temporary ownership of a volume. Where the book collector needs to be able to say, I have that, the bookseller can be content with saying, I've had that. Indeed, the book dealer's sale at a profit of a book which might have been bought on a hunch is a kind of validation. Where does the book collector get his validation? There are, of course, exceptions to this model. There are book collectors, for example, who are capable of selling their books or portions of their collections, either to make shelf room, to create funds for other collections, or perhaps merely to avoid divorce or bankruptcy. But even here, the collector is distinct from the dealer. A classic example is Dr. Herbert M. Evans, one of the earliest collectors of historical science and medicine and the discoverer of vitamin E, who built up several collections in his field, selling them to dealers like Warren Howe and Jake Zeitlin, and then starting all over again. But here, Dr. Evans... I could never bring myself to call him anything else, partly because he was more than 50 years my senior, and partly because every time he saw me, he would ask if I had a gravid uterus. (laughs) He was referring, of course, to the great book of William Hunter, which John Baskerville had printed, and not to any physical abnormality on my part. (laughs) Dr. Evans was displaying the soul of a collector in his sales. The books had simply become too expensive for a simple professor to afford, so he sold them. Suddenly, he had enough money to afford them again, (laughs) and the collecting instinct took over. When Arthur Houghton sold his Gutenberg Bible because his insurance company insisted that he keep it in a bank vault, he too was displaying a collector's passion. There are, to be sure, so-called collectors who are capable of selling simply to realize a profit, Book dealers hate this sort of collector, although they're not averse to buying what they sell and are delighted to be able to turn an additional profit in the resale. Is it any wonder that the undoing of Thomas J. Wise came at the hands of a couple of book dealers? There are also book dealers who are true collectors. As with librarians, such dealers tend to collect something that's off the beaten path so as not to compete with their customers but those dealers who accumulate books that amount to mistakes or huge bargains on which they hesitate to pay the income tax or retirement funds are acting as book dealers, not as collectors. The accumulation of the alleged reference collection is the closest most come to true collecting. The basic need of a collector is to collect, and what he collects is almost incidental to that need. The basic need of a book dealer is to make a living, and what he sells is almost incidental to that need. The book dealer earns money from books, while the book collector spends on books the money he earns elsewhere. If this sounds like the old Olympic ideal of the distinction between amateur and professional, it's a fair comparison. There's always existed a kind of caste separation in the minds of some, and it explains why, for so many years, book dealers had such difficulty in gaining admission to book-collecting clubs. Another myth. Book dealers and book collectors both share a love of books. Do they? It's probably fair to state that the vast majority of both book collectors and book dealers do love books. For book dealers, it's almost a necessity, since there are so many better ways to make money. There are many other uh, things that people uh, who have a passion for collecting could collect, too, and many of them are more convenient to store. Aren't we all a bit jealous of the stamp collector? (laughs) And I don't think it's too far-fetched to suggest that the scorn which traditional collectors heap on those who collect miniature books is tinged with a trace of envy. The difficulty is not in the love of books, but in the sharing There's no single way in which either dealers or collectors love their books. There are collectors who view their books as furniture and dealers who view their books as merchandise. At the same time, there are dealers who can't stand the collector who picks his books out for their bindings or their pretty pictures, just as there are collectors who can't tolerate a dealer who doesn't see the romance and beauty in the wares on their shelves. There are collectors who see their collections as trappings of wealth or as the road to immortality. And there are those who see the first edition or the inscribed copy as a link to uh, long dead personalities. No one ever sees a book in quite the same way. One may find the binding exquisite. Another sees a, a presentation inscription. A third will remark on the quality of the printing in paper Someone else will be excited by the marks of provenance. And another, not necessarily the dealer in the group, may recall how much less the book sold for in 1972. I haven't mentioned the reading of books. There are those that do that, both collectors and dealers. A dealer who doesn't read his books may perhaps be forgiven, but he may also be leaving a lot on the table. Since Steve Weissman, uh, as Steve Weissman in the talk previously mentioned, described a pamphlet which he bought for $85 simply because it looked decent and he had never seen it before. As he read and researched it, the selling price went in stages from $150 to $1,500. But collectors are the ones who receive the scorn for not reading their books. It's the standard question of the naive visitor to the private library, have you read all these books? I can recall actually being asked that question after giving a talk about collecting Baskerville Press at an RBMS conference, and the interrogator was, believe it or not, a rare book librarian. I responded that that was one of the advantages of collecting fine printing. You could take a book off the shelf, look at a few pages, say, that's fine, and put it back on the shelf. Well, even if dealers and collectors don't all love books the same way, at least they both speak the same language. And what language would that be? Book collecting and book dealing is carried on in all sorts of languages, as befits an international trade. But presumably we're talking about the language of books. If that language is bibliography, then I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of both book collectors and book dealers are illiterate. To read many book dealers' catalogs is to learn that bibliography is something that the book being described is not in. (laughs) Many of the bibliographies that are cited I have never heard of, but I'm grateful for the time these dealers have saved me in not having to identify and locate these bibliographies, having already been told that should I find them, they would prove of no use in identifying the listed book anyway. A dozen years ago, Roland Folder prepared a quiz for bibliographers which perhaps unintentionally lampooned these arcane references. One question, for example. A book is listed in GW, Nyhoff, Cronenberg, Oates, and Van Praet, but not in Pell, Paul, Paul, BMC, Goff, IGI, and IDL. Questions. What sort of book is it? In which year was it printed? Where is a copy of it, presumably the only one known? let's not always see the same hands. (laughs) I think it can be said that book dealers talking among themselves do not speak the same language as collectors talking among themselves. Book dealers talk about the problems and mechanics of the trade and perhaps even a bibliopolic coup or two. They generally do not talk about their customers unless they have proved to be deadbeats. In 1983, in preparation for the biennial book fair in San Francisco, Warren Howell determined that a newspaper article would be a good way to publicize the event. Apparently, the reporter wanted more than just quotes from dealers, and despite the fact that it was tax season and I was working at a client's office, Warren found me and asked if I would give an interview as a collector to a reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle. I said yes, and in due course, my reflections as a collector turned up as a sidebar To a full page article featuring a photo of Warren Howell presiding magisterially over his outer showroom. Later, I asked Warren why he had asked me to do the interview since I had never really bought very much from him. Oh, he replied, I would never have given out the name of a customer. (laughs) It's not so much a matter of ethics as it is of economics. Good customers are scarce and jealously guarded by rare book dealers everywhere. What do collectors talk about when they are together? The weather, sports, new restaurants, just like everybody else. They don't talk much about their collections because in general other collectors are not much interested. When a good book dealer talks to a good book collector and wants to sell him a book, then he talks the collector's language. There are a few dealers who still think it's the 1970s when the trick in dealing in rare books was to buy them, not to sell them. Books simply sold themselves. Uh, and if for some reason they didn't, then a year or so any error in the purchase would be rectified by inflation. This is no longer the case, at least not for all books. Books need to be sold, even good books, and even to the right buyers. So a book dealer must learn to explain that to the targeted collector why this book belongs in his collection. Knowing what turns a collector on is just as important as knowing what the collector collects. What this language is can best be learned through experience, but it helps that the dealer understands, as most book, experienced book dealers do, that all book collectors are nuts. When I was in a planetary mode at the beginning of this talk, I think I used the word Eccentric. And perhaps eccentric is a better term. Most psychologists regard collecting as a relatively harmless form of neurosis. Thomas Frognall-Dibden called it bibliomania, although he was not the first to do so. Nicholas Basbanes titled his recent bestseller, The Gentle Madness, which is perhaps a little closer to the affliction that affects most of us. For some, the passion can go too far. Was Sir Thomas Phillips mad to declare that he should own one copy of every book in the world? Is it madness to decide that you will not collect anything that comes in more than three volumes? Is it madness to want to own 10% of the output of a press, that is, if 100 copies of a book were printed, to own 10 of them? All of these were guiding principles of major collectors. Is it madness to own 25 copies of Baskerville's Virgil, as I do, And to think, as I did at one time, it would be nice to acquire a copy for every year I collected. All of these things can be justified, which is why book collecting is not a psychosis, but the fact that they need to be justified is what makes it a neurosis. For those of us who are afflicted, eccentric is a decent term. For those of us who are not, and this includes many book dealers, book collectors are nuts. As Tim Munby put it, For antiquarian booksellers, I have the liveliest affection and admiration. Of course, if a man adopts such a profession, he publicly announces that he will spend his life dealing with collectors. That is to say, he will suffer gladly a higher proportion of neurotic fusspots than if he had chosen to sell blancmange or bicycles. It's not that dealers... uh, must suffer all of the uh, passions of book collectors. Sometimes there are others who suffer. To the extent that bookkeeping leads to overspending, that's just fine with dealers, even if starving wives and children may object. Lady Phillips, for example, was an invalid for much of her life and was uh, not only squeezed by books out of every room but the bathroom but had difficulties in getting Sir Thomas to pay for even the necessities of her life. After one such request, he wrote to his wife who was wintering at the seaside for her health, I told you plainly I could not pay. I have very heavy sums of debt to pay and I cannot. She foolishly replied, Oh, if you would not set your heart so much on your books, making them an idol. How thankful I should be This, of course, demanded and received an outraged response. You have evidently fallen into bad company at Torquay, for you were never so absurd before. I make no... uh, uh, I'm sorry, never interfere with the happiness of other people. I make no idol of my books any more than you do of your hymn books. Therefore, write to me no more in such a strain if you wish to retain my goodwill. Sir Thomas had other passions besides a need to acquire manuscripts to the extent that a term was created for it, Vellomania. He had a particular hatred for of Catholics and his son-in-law, and every deed of gift he proposed for his library included clauses that prohibited both from its use. But his passion for manuscripts also led to an increase in prices, which generally does not displease dealers either, although Sir Frederick Madden, keeper of manuscripts at the British Museum, was not amused. At one point when he lost to Sir Thomas uh, a 10th century manuscript of Dioscorides, he vented his rage, and the entry in his journal also reveals the salesroom tactics of both Sir Thomas and Sir Frederick. Quote, The bidding then proceeded up to 260 pounds, at which sum, by previous agreement with Boone, I dropped it by way of a blind to the booksellers. Boone now took it up for me, and to my great surprise, the stranger went on bidding 10 pounds in advance regularly till it reached the high price of 590 pounds when Boone gave up the lot and the name Charles was given as the purchaser. The real buyer, of course, turned out to be Phillips, and and Sir Frederick went on to comment, I think him quite mad to go on buying manuscripts at such prices. But the ruling passion is too strong in him to resist it. Much good may the Greek manuscript do him at Middle Hill. He certainly would have expended 600 pounds in better manner for the sake of his wife and children. I am sorry now that I did not make terms for the Dioscorides two years ago when the owners would willingly have taken 300 pounds for it. The manuscript is now one of the treasures of the Morgan Library. But it's unfair to use Sir Thomas Phillips as an example since his madness went well beyond gentility and probably beyond neurosis. In fact, the very constancy of uh, Sir Thomas's passions uh, was a comfort to booksellers since they knew if they had for sale the right manuscript, uh, he would buy it, even if they had considerable difficulty later in collecting the sales price. Booksellers are much less happy about what seemed to be fickle passions of some of their customers. I have more than once shifted gears in my own collecting interests, sometimes to the distraction of book dealers. My interest in Baskerville Press remains a constant, but there's not much left to collect. I will still buy the right copy of the Baskerville even if four or five other copies of the same book rest on my shelves, but guessing what the right copy of a Baskerville is much much harder for a dealer than recognizing what is simply a copy of a Baskerville. My drifting off into auction catalogs and historical bibliography was an unwelcome uh, caprice to some book dealers, although it was good news to Jonathan Hill, who has supplied much of that sort of material to me over the years. But now when I tell Jonathan that I'm interested in Duncan Hines' travel and eating guides and philatelic literature, he is driven to distraction. It's particularly irksome to a book dealer when a collector refuses a book which was bought with that collector in mind. And we're not talking here about a commission or a standing order. But what it demonstrates is a lack of understanding of the collector's mind. Difficult as it is sometimes to pry out, there usually is some rationale or at least justification for the collector's interest or lack of interest in a particular book. In some cases, it may simply be a matter of financial limitations, either real or arbitrary. Norman Strauss once wrote an article in which he described the soul-searching he went through when he was offered a very desirable and relevant item for a price in excess of $10,000. He had never paid five figures for a book and was disinclined to. The matter was finally settled when the price was marked down to $9,999. In other cases, the price is regarded as too high, or it is simply a duplicate. One frustrated book dealer asked me with respect to antiquarian bibliography, if you have the book, Breslauer has the book, and Folder has, has the book, who the hell am I going to sell it to? But most often it's a matter of a misunderstanding as to what the collector really thinks he's collecting. It's well worth the dealer's uh, time to try to find out. As an example, in American book auction catalogs, I'm more than 90% complete from 1890 to date. I would almost certainly buy any item in that period, which I lacked. On the other hand, between 1870 and 1890, my collection is only 30% complete, and completion is both a physical and financial impossibility. So the earlier, in the earlier periods, I would only be interested in sales I regarded as important or inexpensive, or which offered unusual features such as owner's copies Uh, or priced and named copies. It's all very simple when explained and yet to figure it out simply on the basis of what is accepted and refused is all but impossible. When Mumby described us as neurotic fusspots and he was a collector himself, he failed to mention that there are some collectors who are quite simply difficult, if not impossible, people to deal with. Harrison Horblet, surely one of the great book collectors of the 20th century, was so described to me by several dealers who traded in the kind of books that uh, Horblet collected. At the same time, a couple of dealers seem to have had very nearly acceptable relationships with him. How were these few successful? That was among the most sensitive of trade secrets. Even though he's gone, there's no assurance that if revealed now, the secret of dealing with Harrison Horblet would be transferable to another dealer's irascible client. Some collectors, too, are sensitive to price, which is to say, in their own minds, they are frugal and wise to the market, and in the minds of the dealers, they are cheap. There may be a right price for, for whom the bell tolls in dust jacket, but for many books, there is only the dealer's price and the collector's perception of value. They are often not identical. Both collectors and dealers have different ways of dealing with this disparity. Some collectors either say yes or no based on the price proposed. Others propose a lower price, sometimes based on a perception of value and sometimes based on principle. We have all read and heard that it is not in the collector's long-range best interest to argue about price. Often these admonitions are propagated by book dealers. If the ask for a discount or reduction is based strictly on principle and not on uh, on a value judgment, then the admonition is quite appropriate. Sooner or later, the collector will either receive uh, no quotes at all, or will be treated like the guest who is always late for dinner and is told to arrive 15 minutes or a half hour before his presence is actually desired. If the proposal for a reduction is based on perception of value on the part of the collector, the offer may be well received because more often than not, The only thing a dealer really knows about the value of a book is how much he paid for it. But this is not a course in negotiation, and the only further comment along these lines I might make is that while the collector quite often knows more about the field in which he collects than the dealer does, he often does not have a very good perception of the market. The outrageous prices which were the result of his own collecting and his bibliographical writings. I've tried hard not to fall into that trap even though uh, I have been collecting Baskerville now for over 40 years. Um, saying that, I still find it difficult to pay 500 to $750 for an ordinary copy of the Baskerville Virgil when I used to buy such copies for $25. Collectors, like many buyers of expensive things, occasionally suffer buyer's remorse. Sometimes they simply make mistakes. Sometimes they've been talked into something or allowed passion to overcome reason. A prompt return is acceptable to virtually every dealer, although I have kept many of my own mistakes as symbols of what I have learned. But often mistakes are recognized only much later, particularly books which never did or no longer do fit in with a collector's vision. Here, if a book dealer is to deal successfully with that collector in the future, he must be prepared to support the market he has created uh, and accept these foundlings. We have seen that book collectors are possessive and territorial, obsessive, but occasionally with short attention spans, subject to temper tantrums and indecision. No wonder the passion to collect is viewed by psychologists as arrested infantile development. And how should a bookseller deal with such people? Get out your copy of Spock, but many of the quirks and complaints of book collectors can be traced to the corollary to the tenet that book collectors are nuts, which is that book dealers are thieves. This is no doubt an unfair characterization, but it's widespread. Wolfe and Fleming, in their book on Dr. Rosenbach, tell the story of Henry Huntington's asking for Dr. R and Sir Joseph Devine to visit him in the hospital before an operation. They go on. When the nurse announced that Mr. Huntington was ready to see them, the two men soberly entered the room. Huntington lay on the bed in his hospital shirt, with head only slightly raised and his two arms extended. With a slight motion, he pointed to chairs on either side of his bed and asked his visitors to sit down. The two dealers sat stiff in their chairs, looking at Mr. Huntington and each other and uttering everyday words of encouragement in a manner that must have been far from encouraging. Suddenly, Huntington, rather amused at the confrontation, turned to Duveen and asked, "'Sir Joseph, do I remind you of anyone?' Nonplussed, Duveen answered, "'Why, no, Mr. Huntington, I don't believe so.' Then he turned his head toward Dr. Rosenbach. "'Tell me, doctor, do I remind you of anyone?' The doctor, quite as much at a loss as Duveen, muttered that he really did not know. "'Well, gentlemen,' said Henry Huntington, still lying flat with his arms outstretched, I remind myself of Jesus Christ on the cross between two thieves. (laughs) The doctor and Sir Joseph smiled weakly. (laughs) The source of much of the suspicion stems from the price of rare books, or rather the lack of a good understanding of what the price of a rare book ought to be. There are several factors which influence the price at which a book is quoted uh, to a customer. The cost to the dealer is one what the market will bear, and to this must be added a guess as to what or who the market is, uh, what what the customer has in mind that he will pay, how desperate the dealer is either for sales in general or to dispose of a particular book, what the dealer knows about the book and its market, and not knowing about the book and the market sometimes results in too high and sometimes too low an asking price. In economic terms, we're talking about a highly imperfect competition, On the other side of the coin, it's often the collector rather than the dealer who knows more about the book and its market. Some years ago, I found a Baskerville Milton in what I knew to be a so-called Baskerville Binding at Marlborough Books in London. The volumes were reasonably priced for the work in that condition, but it was clear that Marlborough did not know what a Baskerville Binding was. After buying the book, I pointed out the distinguishing characteristics of Baskerville Bindings to the proprietor. Despite the fact that I bought books cheaply for what they really were, the dealer has thanked me for the lesson every time I've seen it. But from time to time, I ask myself whether the, the collector should regard himself as a thief when he buys cheaply on account of his superior knowledge. My answer, by the way, is always no. <laughs> I've seen several methods by which dealers who recognize that they do not know what a book is really worth or whether a bibliographical difference is a point or a fault, try to keep an upper hand with the collector. I've been called by dealers to see what I think of something, a form of brain picking which may result in information of use and which I don't mind too much if it means I get first crack at something interesting. When David McGee received uh, the crate containing the archives of Morris and Company, he asked Sandy Berger if, he wanted to help unpack the material. I think partly because he wasn't sure whether Sandy could afford to buy the collection and didn't want to put any more pressure on him before he was completely hooked by the contents of the packing case. Book dealers can engage in a variety of nefarious tricks. They can, although they shouldn't, and very few really do. Collectors are warned of such things as new dust jackets on books lacking them, sophistication, intentional misidentification, added book plates, or even presentation inscriptions, meaningless rarity references, including euphoric statements by Dibden or Wise, failure to disclose facsimiles or other defects, and just plain puffery. To this can be added the rather marginal practice of creating rarities, as with the overpriced and tarted-up autograph with the picture in the expensive frame, and the clearly unethical practice of a guarantee of profits. But if the good dealers do not really do these things, and those that do can usually be quickly identified if the collector cares to, dealers do do some things that they probably should not do. The issue of what to do with a book that needs rebinding or repairs is a delicate one. No one wants to buy an ugly book, but will the de- dealer destroy evidence in the process that ought to be prever- preserved? To what extent should the repairs be disclosed? For years, George Bainton and Bath made a living buying up books with broken bindings and rebacking and regilding them. Is this a service to collectors or a disservice to bibliography? Perhaps a greater use of boxes is the answer. What should a book dealer do with old price and cost markings and collation marks from earlier dealers? Many feel that especially if the prices are low, they will hurt a current sale. But more and more, these scribbles are being recognized as an integral part of the history of the book and its trade. Should an ugly book plate be removed? No dealer would uh, take out a Walpole book plate or try to remove a Heber rubber stamp. But what about the stationery store from the shelves of blank sort of thing? There's also the suspicion that books might be stolen. This is not a small danger either for the bookseller or his customer and it's a problem that even the most careful of book dealers has trouble avoiding. Since the book dealer is the one that has bought the books from the thief, it is he who usually suffers the greatest financial damage when the theft is discovered. But the distress to the book collector is not to be ignored. I can recall Haskell Norman telling me how painful it was for him to return books which had been sold to him by Warren Howell and turned out to have been stolen from the crearar Library. The University of Chicago, which discovered the thefts, to some extent recognized the pain and allowed collectors to retain books subject to financial restitution, which would, if returned, have been duplicates in the combined collections. And then there's Replevin, which every dealer in manuscripts and documents dreads and which haunts every collector who knows anything about it. I've always wondered why the book dealer, who is the principal victim of the thief, is often tarred with the same brush. Although to the extent that greed or ego has contributed to the purchase of the stolen property, perhaps it's not undeserved. For all of this, I suspect that the book dealer loses more good customers in buying books from them than in selling books to them. The pain of paying too much for a book is temporary and fades with time. But the longer one has owned a book, the more sensitive he is to its sales price. As I mentioned before, the dealer can get validation of his efforts relatively quickly in the sale of a, a book at a profit. The book collector is not comfortable selling his books in the first place, since they are or have been almost like children, and he's searching for some validation too. The longtime collector knows his books, he probably knows the market and he probably has a pretty good idea of the margins on which the book dealer operates or uh, the appropriate consignment rates. The bookseller may think it is in his best interest to point out faults here and there in the hope of striking a good deal, but I think he would be better served by emphasizing the highlights, showing the collector that he appreciates what he has assembled, exclaiming over the key pieces that are present, noticing the attention to acquisition of collateral material, all will help to give the collector the feeling that his collection is going to a dealer who appreciates it and will find the right home for it. If the collector is selling only a portion of his books, uh, this approach is all the more important since he will continue to be a customer. Even if he's selling all of his books, he will probably be back into collecting in due course because, as Madden said of Phillips, the ruling passion is too strong in him to resist it. I often wonder if the reason so many collections are given to institutions is that the collector fears facing the cold evaluation in trying to sell them. An even more cold-hearted verdict on the collector's judgment is rendered in the auction galleries. Is it any wonder that the auction houses advise collectors not to attend the sales of their collections? The result always looks a great deal better in the whole than it does lot by lot. Perhaps it was the callous judgment of the auction room that drove Harrison Horblet, who had a great emotional attachment to his books, to cut off the sale of his collection at Sotheby's after two sessions. For several years, he had what was once described to me as the greatest collection of science in the world from H to Z. And then the remaining books were sold to H.P. Krauss, where they no doubt received a more sympathetic analysis. But enough anecdotes. It's time for a conclusion and refreshments. The next time you, as a book collector, are frustrated with a bookseller, and the next time you, as a bookseller, are frustrated with a book collector, remember, book dealers are from Mercury, book collectors are from Pluto. Even if you remember nothing else from this talk, remembering that we are supposed to be different will help in easing are difficult relationships. But if book dealers and book collectors are from two different worlds, can they ever really find mutual respect and profitable relationships? Well, if book dealers are to avoid insanity and remain only slightly neurotic, they must buy books. And if book dealers are to line their purses with gold, they must sell books. So the sanity and the prosperity of the nation, and indeed the world, Depend on their somehow finding solutions. These solutions can only come as individual book collectors and dealers find individual answers. Millenniums of prejudice and misunderstanding cannot be swept away by joint edicts from the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers and the International Association of Bibliophiles. I can only hope that this modest and very preliminary analysis of the immutable differences between book collectors and book dealers will lead to tolerance, to understanding, and ultimately to finding those individual solutions. I sincerely hope so, because after all, some of my best friends are antiquarian book dealers. Thank you very much.
0: I hope that those who are here for the week will spend some time, either tonight or on Wednesday or Thursday, or indeed at any time during the week, in looking at some of the Book Arts Press collections, which festoon the shelves in this room for the summer. And at your leisure, will you please precess to the west and come have a drink with the speaker in the first floor lounge of the Alderman Library.